Good morning, family, and so good to be with you in your houses, um, with you wherever you are. Um, before we go into the word, let's just pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, this is your word. Lord, this is your church. Lord, come and edify us. Come and touch us. Come and challenge us. Come and change our hearts, our minds. Above all, Lord, may there be glory to your Son. Bring glory to your Son and draw us as your church closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. So all of us who study the Bible will know that, that there are times where we come to the climax of a revelation and we are left breathless with this new view we have found in the same scriptures we have been reading over and over for years. We've been preaching through Romans chapter 8 um, the last few weeks and this is exactly what happens when we get to the last few verses in Romans chapter 8. It is as if we have reached the climax of this mountain. You will see now as we go through it, we have been climbing this mountain for the last few weeks and we can see the full incredible view and this is what's going to happen in Roman chapter 8 with the last few verses commentators has called um, uh, this passage a hymn of assurance a song of triumph even the highest point of the whole revelation and the mountaintop of Romans chapter 8 there's a place called map of Africa in wilderness in the western cape now to get up to the map of Africa it's somewhere in the mountain it's quite a pretty view it's a scenic view and then once you you get there you are surprised by a river that carved out the continent of Africa in the mountain and this is exactly what wrote the last few verses of Romans chapter 8 does technically speaking but there are seven questions in this passage but we cannot count the first questions as part of the set. So Paul uses it as a formula to move from an exposition to the end of or conclusion of an argument. Something like in light of what I have been teaching from chapters 5 to 8. So what conclusions do follow? So that's what Paul is trying to explain. So with all these things said, um, what are the conclusions that follow? What happens after this? What do you say about all these things? Um, and so secondly, the last two questions form part of the same inquiry. So, a matter of, so as a matter of fact, there are only five questions in this passage that we will focus on today. So John Stott, another Bible commentator, said the following about this passage. He said, the apostle hurls these questions out into space as it were defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them but there is no answer for nobody or nothing can harm the redeemed people of God so without further ado why don't you click swipe or turn with me to Romans chapter 8 verse 31 to 36 let's read together what shall we say about such wonderful things as these if God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us? If we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death, as the scriptures say, 
For your sake we are killed every day. For we are being slaughtered like sheep. So in light of what God had been saying to us through His preached word, through Romans chapter 8, the last couple of weeks, what conclusions do we draw? So family, the first question we are presented here in this passage today is, and we all know this question, and we've all prayed this question, and we all quote this question so many times. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, of course, many things, many people, and even circumstances can be against us. And similarly, when we study the Bible, we come across three great enemies of the believer in Christ. Namely, the world, our flesh, and the devil. So the world, let's, let's look at the world first and we talk about it and then we'll carry on. So the world is against us because everything Christians believe in and do is an offense to the world and their God-rebelling ways. The world's purpose is to try and get us to conform to their patterns because the way we live as Christians is foolishness to them. Now, but yet in the foolishness of the cross, which looks, which it seems to the world, the power of God lies for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Our flesh is also our enemy because it contains the seeds of sin and in it we are unable to escape its influence in our lives. And then we have the powerful enemy in Satan who is described by Apostle Peter as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour we, devour, we find that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So yes, we have a lot of enemies and we have a lot of things in this world that are against us. But what are they actually when God is for us? You see in verses uh, 25 to 30 of Romans chapter 8, Paul just cleared away any form of doubt by showing to the believer that God had set his love upon us, how God had set his love upon us, by predetermining us that we are to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And then having predetermined us to his likeness, God calls us justified and glorified. In this verse, the word if makes the difference. It's not if God, maybe God will be for us, what, what if? It is if God is for us, who can be against us? Now imagine we have an old-fashioned balance scale on which we weigh peanuts. And uh, when we put all the peanuts we own on one side of the scale and we throw a 10-pound hammer on the other side of the scale, the peanuts will fly around all over the place and be scattered all over because of the weight of the hammer. And it is the same way with God our problems are peanuts in front of God and that's why if God is for us who can stand against the church of God who can stand against the believer nothing can defeat us if the almighty God of the universe is on the side of his church and I've got good news for you family that the might our God the mighty God of universe is part of us he is working for us not against us he's got plans for us not plans against us and one day we will be rewarded with what God has in store for us family and this brings us 
to the second question of this passage. And, 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 and since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, here's the question. Won't he also give us everything else? Now, all of these questions are answerable because they are founded upon the undeniable truth, which is Jesus Christ. And the truth about this question is that God did give us his son. So what if Paul had asked if God will give us all things? We would hesitate to answer for how could we be confident that God will give us all things? Wouldn't it be right to think that even God has a limit to his grace and generosity? These questions might be reasonable, but the fact that God already gave us everything, his son, Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, that is not only the greatest gift God gave, but in Jesus, God gave us everything we need for life in this world and after it. God gave us Jesus, not just to be with us like, like some mystical being, but he gave him over to die so that we might be rescued from judgment due to us because of our sins. Here Paul challenges the, the church to look at the cross and reason as follows. If God did that for us by sending his own son Jesus to die in our place, is there anything else God could possibly withhold from us after he have already gave us everything? One day a Sunday school teacher uh, told her class that she will give the first person 100 rand if they could, they could think of a promise God, God have made that um, he has not yet kept. And the teacher might as well said, I would give you a million rand um, because she reminded the class before they answered that the Bible tells us that God has already guaranteed all things since he has not even withheld his own son when he gave him to us. It is as if this verse is a blank check for everything we need in Jesus Christ. Let us look at some examples um, and uh, out of the Bible. But let's say you need some strength uh, to overcome a certain temptation, a certain sin. Now, obviously, in your own strength, you cannot do it. But God will give us the strength to overcome it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted above what you can bear. So when we need a friend, another example of this is when we need a friend with us to go through life's dark and, and lonely places, will God not be that friend to us? Of course he will. John 15, 15 says that I no longer call you slaves because a, sla a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you are my friends. And since I have told you everything the father told me and I am with you always, even though to the end of the age, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Because God gave us Jesus, the greatest gift of all possible gifts, we can count on Him to give us all lesser gifts. As another Bible commentator said, the cross of Jesus proves God's generosity to His people. This brings us to the third question. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own who dares accuse us us whom God has chosen for his own 
This question is more of a legal question, as if we are now in a court of law. That's the illustration Paul is using there. Whether someone exists somewhere to accuse us, to bring us into final spiritual condemnation. Who dare to accuse us whom God, whom have been chosen by God? Let's read together from Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 5. Let's read. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing among the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, as, clothes as, he, as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is what Paul had in mind when he was asking the question, apart from God's work on the cross, there would be many trying to condemn us. The devil, others, and even our own hearts would try to condemn us. But this is Paul, Paul's counter uh, argument against this. In verse 30, we find this in this passage. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Uh, those he justified, he also glorified. And then the question is now that you know that you are predestined, you have been called, you've been justified, you've been glorified. Now, now I can ask the question again, who can then possibly accuse us, the church of God, the redeemed, the predestined, the justified, the glorified, if we have been already acquitted from all of our sins and our wrongdoings, from uh, in the highest court of all, which is the court of God. Who can still accuse us of anything? He goes on to question number four. He says then, who will then condemn us? Because it's two questions. Who will accuse us and who will condemn us? And this is the fourth question. And the fourth question uh, is so to close the third one that people confuse many times as one question, but they are not. So when Paul asked earlier, who will accuse us? He was referring to whether the good purpose of God toward us will ever change. He concluded that they would not since he has already given, gave us everything through Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of all. Paul now goes a step further by asking who will condemn us, his church. He is now asking whether the attitude of Jesus could change the answer is simple, family. Jesus who died, who was raised to life, and is now at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us at the right hand of God. The Bible uses a phenomenal illustration to teach us this truth by using the word paraclete, which means a lawyer or an advocate. For both Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Bible uses the word paraclete. A paraclete is is someone who is called alongside another person for help. And this is also the exact meaning of the word advocate. It's someone who is called alongside you. So Jesus uses the word paraclete when he told the disciples that he was going to send the Holy Spirit to them to be their counselor in John chapter 16 verse 5 to 50. 
John also uses this term paracleto advocate, saying that in him we have an advocate who intercedes for us. He speaks to the Father in our defense in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. Again we see this beautiful illustration of, of, of a divine law firm that has two branches, an office in heaven and an office on earth. Um, the early, in the earthly office, the Holy Spirit pleads for us, interpreting our petitions correctly to God. In heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ pleads for effectiveness of His shed blood to show that we are saved and nothing and no one can rise up against and cause our condemnation by God. Not only can no one accuse us of who we are in Christ, but no one can condemn us either. Family, that is something to celebrate. That is something to give you peace amongst the storm that we are currently in facing as a country, as a church, I mean in the global church, as a person, wherever you are. Have peace that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's go on to the fifth question. So the first question Paul asked then, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Listen to this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? The final question that brings it all together we find in verse 35 of Romans chapter 8. It's the pivotal point. Can anything ever separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? John Stott writes the following about this passage. He says, with this fifth and final question, Paul himself does, does um, what we have been trying to do with the other four questions. He looks around for a possible answer. He brings forward all the adversaries he can think of, which might be thought to separate us from Christ's love. We may have to endure tribulation, distress, and persecution, that is, the pressure of an ungodly world. We may have to undergo famine and nakedness. That is the lack of adequate food and clothing, which since Jesus promised them to the heavenly father's children, might seem to be evidence that God does not care. We may even experience peril and sword. That is the danger of death and actual death by the wickedness of men. Martyrdom, the ultimate test of our faith. It is a real test too. Because the scripture warns us in Psalms 44 verse 22. And Paul quotes this passage in verse 36 of Romans chapter 8. That God's people are being killed all day long for his sake. That is they are continuously being exposed to the risk of death. Like sheep for the slaughter. These are adversities indeed. They are real sufferings. Painful and dangerous and hard to bear. But can they separate us from the love of Christ? No. They are far from separating us from the love of Christ. For in all these things, in these very sufferings, in experience and in endurance of them, we are more than conquerors through Christ who gives us strength. Then finally, church, we, we come to the last question in this passage. He says, what shall we say about these wonderful things? Or better yet, now that you know all these things, what do you say about all of this? Family, what do you say 
about all of this? What will your response be to all of this? This question clearly separates the, the believers from the unbelievers. If we ask this question perhaps to, to a person who is not a Christian, who's not a follower of Christ, we might get one of two responses. One is that the person couldn't care less about the answer because they think the whole thing is at the foolishness. Or the unbeliever might respond with hostility by saying, who are you to think that God has shown such special favor on you to actually send Jesus to die for you and them uh, to, uh, and, and then promise to keep you through all of the problems this life offers and take you to heaven. That is just arrogance to think of that. But for us as Christians, we rejoice in what God had done for us. Because for all of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have this conviction that His love is indeed the greatest love for all of us. It is the very foundation of our salvation. And because of this divine love, all Christians can be assured that God's love for us can and will never ever be shaken. No, it will never ever weaken, vary, fluctuate or change. So take confidence in this love of God for you, believer, that it will never ever change for you. I want to conclude. God's love for the believer is the strongest, the most steady, the most firm, unbending, solid, substantial, constant, dependable love of all the love that, he, that there is. As Charles Spurgeon said, if I go to Jesus and get from him a new heart and a right spirit, I shall be secured against these temptations into which others have fallen. I shall be preserved by him. It was this truth with others that brought Spurgeon to Jesus Christ. Family, this is the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the love of God that is fixed in Jesus Christ. That is commended to you and me by Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote earlier in this letter in chapter 5 verses 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ had died for us. No matter what you're going to family, through family. No matter what your situation. What the circumstances. You're frustrated by the lockdown. You're frustrated by everything that's currently happening. Remember that God demonstrated His own love in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me pray with you for a moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, I bring each and every person that listens to this message, to your good news this morning, before your throne of grace. Father, I pray that, that you will give us peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that nothing can separate us from your love. Knowing that your love cannot change towards us. Knowing that you, we are held firmly in your hand by your love for us. Father, we come against every lie of the enemy that has told your people that God doesn't love them. Because look at what's happening in the world. Look at how the coronavirus, look at how businesses close. We come against every lie that the enemy has said. And we pray in the name of Jesus that your truth, which is Jesus Christ, 
would guts and chains and challenge people's hearts to believe in faith that you still love us, that you still love your church, that you still love your bride, your people, in the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace, for your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.